Noah and I had a good time yesterday. We did. It um, was awesome. We don't really hang out much, but uh, when we do, it's at work. That's true. Yeah, a lot of work hanging out, if that counts. But. So, yesterday was officially the first wedding in the barn. Yes. That is the correct response. And I'm realizing now that all I've said is me and you hung out yesterday <laughs> and there was a wedding in the barn. So you I'm also gonna... may notice that Vanessa's not here yet. Tyler and I have been in So now I'm years. going to add more details just in case I don't Everyone's need that rumor confused. spreading. That's right. Uh, it's all been re being recorded, so it'll be fine. No. So uh, uh, Chantel, Chantel and Hans, I don't know that actually many people know who they are. Um, They've sort of been here with us since we came into this barn, um, and they've kind of found a home here. And back in December, they said, hey, we're, we're getting married, and there's no better place we can think of to do this than, um, than this place. And so we got to have, it was a really beautiful ceremony in it was general. Um, yeah. And uh, you, they left some of their... Uh, artifacts kind of here just to, I, I told them it'd be cool to honor that you guys did this thing in the barn um, and uh, it's it's not really fair to talk about them because they're not here um, they just got married yeah um, Chantal and Hans they're both on their uh, their second marriages and um, it was a afternoon full of not everything went okay yeah like you guys have had some pain and some suffering, and yet you found hope. And uh, I know you've experienced Chantel and Hans and have kind of been like, these people just seem to embody why this exists in the first place. Yeah, uh, just like, both of them are just so kind and very different. Um, a little outgoing, but also a little reserved, but just, I don't know, they're, they're very lovely people. And actually, I'm sure you may have noticed too, for me, I've played music for a lot of weddings and usually it is very um what's the word uh centered around something that maybe it shouldn't be centered around it just happens a lot um especially if it's you know young friends or what have you and this was just such a refreshing outward looking uh i mean they really brought their entire all their people and it was about honoring all of the people in the room as well as honoring each other and that was just it really was amazing they didn't it, it, the least egocentric wedding I've ever been to. It was so kind. It was really something. Mm. I was glad it was the first one in the farmhouse. Yeah, it was, it was, it was beautiful. Um, they had requested you to play a very specific song. Um, it, it happens to be the first song that Hans heard when he showed up. And you have to understand, um, the, part of the reason the farmhouse was so important to them is when they first showed up here, it was actually Hans by himself for the first time. And Hans came, walked in as a pretty adamant atheist, somebody who was searching, but didn't know what faith would even look like for him. And then he showed up, and he left and said, whatever that was, I can do that. And, and part of it dealt with this song. And uh, I actually have a history with Chan Chantal. When I interned at a large megachurch in the area, she was like one of the top people there. And so when she showed up, I was like, I know you, you're like that really cool person who, you know, was at the top and I wasn't. Um, and I was very humbled that she would be like, I want you to do my wedding. Um, but so Hans leaves and he 
sort of tells Chantel, who, who is trying to push Hans into going, you have to figure out what faith is going to look like if we're going to be married together. And Hans leaves and says, I, I found it. And it's this barn out in the middle of nowhere. And um, it honestly was this song that's called All My Love that did it for him. Which and, is crazy. Yeah, yeah and, and he was able to understand that his propensity towards Chantel and also his propensity towards God as he was coming to understand God was articulated in this song. Um, and you've, you've played this several times um, um, here. It's not going to be one that you, have, you won't recognize. My hope today is uh, Noah's going to play this, and I hope you can see it the same way that Hans and Chantel did as, is this about you toward, to your community, that I want to give you all my love? And is this about your relationship with the divine, that by the time you breathe your last, will you have given every single piece of your love to God and to each other? And I think that's a, that's a really beautiful picture of what we can be all about here at the farmhouse. So um, if you do know it, um, especially as you get to the end, and there's that sort of repetitive, all my love, all my there's love. A, there's an easy part to say. That, I'd love for us to sing that with Noah together. But if you just need to, to sit and um, reflect on this and meditate and, and seriously, if the only thing Sunday morning offers some people is that you've been in chaos all week and you show up here and you have a second to breathe, I think that's worth it. So if you just need to use this time for that, absolutely, please go ahead. But let's, uh, let's enjoy this song that was celebrated yesterday for the first wedding in the barn and um, hopefully we'll continue to define our community. Los Angeles burns today Magnesium fills the air The sky is a reflection of A weekend in cold despair She wasn't so far from you Two stones from the same blue sea could have been anyone You could have been robbed from me I want to breathe you in Use every moment of So when the light grows dim I've given all my love We don't know what lies ahead But we still have a ways to go for now I will take your hand And treasure what I get to hold I want to breathe you in Use every moment of So in the light grows dim 
I've given all my love, all my love, all my love, all my love to you. And as they're going, I want to introduce a, uh, a notable guest that we have today. Um, it's somebody that if you have been uh, at Metamore United Methodist Church for any period of time, you recognize this person um, and you probably know more about this person than this person knows about you because she's so visible. And um, we've done a couple object reflections with her in the past, and uh, I, I always tell her that it's, it's great for her to tell her story and to talk about some of the things she's seen because it gives all of us in the room a little bit of that shared heritage that comes with her life. So if you all would be so gracious in giving a very warm welcome to Mrs. Vicki Barnes. Sit down, come on. Oh, so you actually just got back from a, uh, a little bit of a trip last night, right? Yeah. What time did you get into a... Cincinnati. We got home early, though. It was about 7 when we got in. Okay. So. Okay, so you're not too tired this morning. No. I grabbed my notebook out, and Amy's going to cringe because she's seen me up here with UMW and, and how I can take the stage and go on and on for... <laughs> Especially about topics I'm enthusiastic about. Hey, Vicki, <laughs> I know somebody else who tends to do that. <laughs> That'd be me. Um, no, where were you last, last night? Where were you this weekend? Tell everybody. Um, our youngest granddaughter, Wendy's youngest, Sydney, it was in the All-State Choir. So we were in Cincinnati with two of the other kids from Evergreen High School sang with her. So they had about 170 people. That's awesome. <laughs> So the, the reason I uh, asked Vicki in particular to um, do our object reflection today um, is because of some of the content that we've been exploring so far in the book of Acts. Um, and and Vicki, I think you even mentioned to me like, yeah, some of the stuff that we're talking about is, is stuff that's helped inspire UMW and, and in particular here, inspired cast. And... Uh, what we're going to get into today deals a little bit with that, but also especially last week. And um, 
as I was thinking about it, I was like, I, I don't know that everybody here knows what caste is. And even I think the people who know what caste is uh, might not know as much depth as you do about it. So, I mean, I see I, you've got like... I have lots of copious notes because <laughs> some of the things that come up, like the mission statements and everything, sure. it was way too much to memorize. But yeah. I had to go back and review some of it. And I'm really surprised that it really just got its start in 2010. That it really shocked me that we hadn't been doing it longer than that. But yeah. the first thing he wanted was a recap of the progress we've made. So Well, so it starts in and, 2010, mm -hmm. but it's not at the what's no. called the CAST building now. No. So how did it start? It started just with people in the community recognizing a need for, of some of the community members, and they would offer food and pantry items in their homes. And there was one in Metamora and one in Lyons, so we called it the east and west versions, but mm -hmm. there were few enough people that knew it existed that the products would expire and they wouldn't ever have enough to hand out when they needed it. So in 2010, that's when Esther Benfer's house became the ministry center. Mm -hmm. And um, really it was the pastor from the Berkey Church because CAST is an interfaith, um, Evergreen Interfaith Association. So we had mostly the Berkey pastor and we had our pastor too and the Lutheran, but we had churches from all over the area, the Lions, Lytton, East Chesterfield. They were from everywhere that helped donate, but we set up a distribution center at the um, ministry center. We had maybe 10 people and maybe by the time we moved out of the ministry center, we might have had 20 families coming. Yeah. But there were 15 volunteers, only seven members on the board. But um, we ourselves provided all of the things that were distributed financially. There was no financial base at the time, and we just counted on donations from churches and the community to provide what, the, what we handed out to the people. So we yeah. struggled, and it was a good good five years of really struggling financially to provide anything at all. But. but the thing I love about it is the story starts not with like some grand food distribution plan and here's all the X's and O's. It was, we need to get some food out. Can you bring some and you bring some and you bring some and uh, yeah, we'll use this building and yep, okay. And you just started making it happen. And with that comes learning curves. Right. And right. Th that I mean, if you look at it now, with we we function a lot with Seagate uh, Food Bank and uh, Northwest Food Bank in Toledo. I mean, you look at it now and the amount of stuff we're able to get. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe it would have been great to have had that back then. But starting it, out, it was just baby steps and yeah, a right. lot of praying and counting on people's good hearts to be able to donate and. Yeah, because like he said, right now we're set. But like in 2011, um, it was in the ministry center. 2012, we moved into the Glecklers. Um, it used to be the old daycare in Metamora, on Mill Street, and that got to be financially totally out of sight with the rent and the. Yeah. We had to pay heating and um, all of the utilities and everything, and it just got to be way out of sight. We couldn't afford to be paying for a building plus getting the pantry items that we needed. So in 2014, we moved to the current location, which is behind the um, bank. It's like, it was the bank community room and previously been used for Northwest State. 
but that ended up being an ideal location and the rent's mm -hmm. affordable and of course the bank donates a lot to help us with yeah. that. But then about the same time, we wanted to apply to the food banks in the area to start getting help with, it was costing 18 to 1900 a month to put out the products. We were serving 60 families well, by then. And can you say, and can you say something about uh, the, the style of cast and the, and the products? Because it's more than just like canned food. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can you say something about that? Yeah. <laughs> And I'm sorry if I'm like and making you all, bring know, around your jumping all over my notes because <laughs> real, the really the real big benefit for us was we struggled and struggled to come up with a 501c3. Yeah. And that was really where the help was going to start because we couldn't apply to food banks. We couldn't get help anywhere. But at the time, Mary Cohen was working with United Way in Wasian and she encouraged us to apply for a grant. So it was a phenomenal amount of paperwork, but Janet's brother Paul was there at the time and he interviewed us and we went over and we got $1,200. So that was a huge, huge benefit. And, and that forced the, the 501c3 that to go forced through. forced the 501, which then which opened through up the Methodist Church. So yeah. the, the Methodists got a lot more active back in the, in the sticking point was we couldn't use our 501c3 unless we were the sole proprietors right. of the ministry. Right. And that was in an interfaith organization. Right. That, that didn't <laughs> sit well with everybody. Right. But it's changed cast. I, it I mean, has changed. And if you haven't been up to the building, you've got to come through and go yeah. through sometime. But like he said, we do get a lot of the food from Seagate and Northwest now. Very, very minimal cost. Seagate is actually free. Northwest, I think we pay 18 cents a pound up to a certain amount. We have to order 100 pounds a month. But then there's a lot of free shopping we can do in their pantry and very, very minimal cost. And our, our budget has been able to stay, I think it's between three and 4,000 a month with, not that I want anyone to stop donating. Three, three or 4,000 a year. Um, you said a month. Oh, well, we keep three to 4,000 in, in our, in in our, our bank in our account bank. Yeah, you're all right. the time uh, now. Our monthly expenses are usually around like $500 mm -hmm. compared mm -hmm. to 1,800 right, right. before. It, it's way more sustainable, right? Right. But the products that, like, there's canned stuff and, and all that. But mm -hmm. you know, people are getting trash bags. They're getting paper products. They're getting toiletries. They're getting right. Uh, That's what we count on the monetary donations for, mm -hmm. and other donations are to get the paper products, the toilet paper, Kleenex, deodorant, shampoos, toothpaste, toothbrush. There are still a lot of items we buy, even though we get all the food products. Yeah. Much cheaper. And, and everybody shops. Like we're not just putting together a box and handing it to them. It, everybody, you that's go around. That's the biggest thing. With, we've that's, had that's so been since much the beginning, praise, right? even from Northwest. We let people come in and walk around the room and pick the items they want. We don't just hand them a bag or a box and say, this is what you get this month. They get to say, no, I have enough of that at home, or I don't need any more of that. And they only take what they'll use. Mm -hmm. So. You and that's been like that since the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I when I first got here, that was one of the things where I was like, "This is awesome." Right. I'm so glad you all, you all do that. Um, why why is cast important to you? What's the significance of it? Because I don't I think with I've been um, very active in United Methodist Women from the time Paul and I got married, and I became a Methodist. I grew up <laughs> Presbyterian. 
<laughs> when I became a Methodist and saw how much the women are involved in not just global ministries, but area ministries and taking care of their focuses on women, children, and youth. But it, just, it opened my eyes a little bit. And then when people in the community saw the need here and wanted to provide, it happened right at the same time I retired from my job. And I had no extra skills or anything. I'm a medical technologist by trade. That's how I grew up working in microbiology and hematology. I didn't have any background for this so at all. So if you but... have questions <laughs> about what those words even mean, you can see Vicki. <laughs> But, um, but I was smart enough to write the grants and take care of some of the paperwork. And we had Tyler Justice here at the time, and he's the one that applied to Seagate and got us hooked mm -hmm. up with them. But we did the United Way, and we did the Northwest State, mm -hmm. and, or the Northwest Ohio Food Bank. And, but we've had a lot of help. With, uh, in the beginning, everything was written out on cards, and it was all paperwork, and now it's all computerized. Yeah. And Tyler and Cheryl and... Nancy Ossenbaugh, and we've had a lot of help with the computer. And <laughs> so outside of the logistical things you just brought up, <laughs> I think the thing that stands Art. out the most to me of both you and Paul and, and Nancy and Dick and, and Cheryl and all these people who have made this happen is there's something bigger than just volunteer. This is something that seems important to your identity. <laughs> And, and, and a lot of this, that. Tyler has preached and preached to change the world by restoring the image of God in all people and yeah. transforming the community and all the earth to how God created and dreams for it to be. And we've heard that right from the beginning, yeah. but it, it was just part of growing up Christian and understanding yep. the need to share what we have and um, recently, the women's group had done a study on money and the economy of enough. And they've yeah. done some really funny stories on stuff and the story of stuff. And the more ac you accumulate, you know, the more the trash piles up. And the, the stories really go on and on about, you know, when is it we finally have enough and say we don't need any more for ourselves. It's time to share with the community. Right. And Tyler told me it was okay to tie in a story from yeah, United Methodist Women. Yeah. So I'm going to do this because part of that group is um, the books that we study that point us in this direction too. And one of the books I read recently was called Finding God in a Bag of Groceries. But um, this is like a young woman pastor that was working in a church and just learning how to help with the food bank and help find housing, other ways to help the people in the community. But she said at, at one of their meetings, one of the faithful church ladies in the group with a pointed finger and sharp tone in her voice said, why aren't you helping these people get out of poverty? Some of them have been getting help all their adult lives. After all you've done for some of them, why are they still coming back for more? She said, I was so angry I could hardly speak. My voice shook when I finally spoke. If we could wave a magic wand and solve addiction, mental illness, and the nation's health care crisis, we could solve rural poverty. I said slowly, trying not to scream at her. Then I reminded her of what we could do. We're putting tiny bandages of love on gaping societal wounds, I said. That's all we can do. We feed people, we love them, we offer them a safe place to come and talk, and mm -hmm. we share their sorrows. That's it. 
We cannot fix the education system, get transportation for families, or create jobs for the unemployed. We're not in the business of solving rural poverty. We're in the business of feeding people with love. So that's what we try to do. And that, that is a really great depiction of caste. Uh, like, so as Wesleyans, social action and social justice. Social action is responding to problems. Social justice is eliminating that problem. Right. And Wesley said both are important. And that, that whole notion of like our job here is to restore the image of God. It's to restore that in you. It's to restore that in others. It's to restore that in all creation. And I think the thing that stands out the most to me is, you know, there has been families who no longer come to cast because they don't need it anymore. Oh, our numbers were up in the 70s at one time. I, I probably close to 200 um, individuals, individuals yes. that we were taking care of. And our numbers are down like between 30. I think last, the month of December, we had 45 families, but mm -hmm. it's been down in the 30s, right around 27 but to the, 30. When uh, a family goes, I don't actually need it this month. That's right. good news. Right. That's We're not hoping failure. it's they've found jobs and they've found other ways to. And there has because been stories they know of people we, who've done that. We hand out all kinds of information of other places they can go to get help. And mm -hmm. we're just hoping that true. People have said that, you know, well, next month I'm going to be working. So I'll be able to come back and donate and help. Yeah, you know? that's, that's the part that's amazing to me. But what that, that story brings up, too, is the best thing that probably happens is you get a bunch of people in a room and they talk to each other. And if people are looking each other in the mm -hmm. eye and they're sharing stories, that's part of the deal too. Mm -hmm. it, and I think it, it is very easy to look at a social justice ministry and say, how have people been helped? What I, what I think is really profound uh, about the people who volunteer for Cast Like Yourself is how it's affected you. And you've helped restore the image of God in people you've also looked more like the image of God because you've served in this way. And, and that's an important part of the process. Um, I, th I think one thing that I wanted to, to say is, so CAST happens on the third Wednesday of, of every month. And um, it happens from uh, 9 to really about 11 is when the most people are coming, but it's open until noon. Mm -hmm. um, there's also on the Tuesday before, they do some in the evening. If you want to help with CAST, help is always needed. It will also help you. And I hope that you can see that. Um, but it's even more than just distribution. How many hours do you think between you, Paul, Vicky, or uh, Becky, um, how many hours do you think you put in a month to pull CAST off? Oh, wow. <laughs> 10? 20? At least, at least between 10 and 20, probably depending on the month. Yeah. So you volunteer 10 to 20 hours a month to make sure that people have food who need it and are also being engaged with in a healthy way. Can anybody else help with that? <laughs> Can you... Uh, anybody else? No, it won't go on forever, but I... I just feel like God does provide for, I mean, it just mm -hmm. kind of came up as a thing that Paul and I had both retired right when we needed to, to get involved in this. Yeah. And 
Paul was like, what am I going to do for my retirement? It's going to be so boring, you know. Well, that was the year that we got the 501 and had to start going to Seagate and Northwest. Yeah. And in the beginning, Dick Ossenbaugh went <laughs> until he had his heart problems. But it, that's a massive thing. They don't load the car for you. And we end up with anywhere from 2,000 to 4,000 pounds on the truck. And, you know, it's we're getting old. So we know that the end is probably in sight for us to be able to continue yeah. to do this. But then we're limited because of the time of day that you have to go to the food banks too, right. that it has yeah. to be done during the day. And if we come home with refrigerated or frozen things that have to be put away right away, mm -hmm. we can't wait until the young kids are out of school and to have other people to help. But right now we're doing all right. <laughs> well, I'm gonna invite people to ask you questions uh, afterwards and, mm -hmm. and so if you're willing to stick around for a little bit, sure. if anybody wants to know more about CAST or is interested in how you might be able to help, um, please talk to, to Vicki. Uh, I think this is going to continue to be an important ministry mm -hmm. for us as we move forward. Right now, there's talk about possibly helping the school in some mm -hmm. ways. And, you know, you think about how many food insecure families there are in our school system, and we might have an opportunity to help with that now, too. Um, I, so I look forward to this, but mm -hmm. thank you so much for sharing. Sure. <laughs> I, I, I know that you're, you're not always the most excited about having to sit and talk in front of people, but it's so beneficial. And, and I hope you all have heard more about something that's integral to our life here. So if everybody could give Vicki a round of applause. Thank you, Vicki. Okay, and uh, Vicki, you were incredibly inaccurate on the length um, and you've, you, we've left, <laughs> we've left me with, oh, but little time. So, we're going to see, we're going to see how this goes. Y'all ready for Acts chapter 3? Okay, let's get into Acts, <laughs> yeah, give it up for Acts chapter 3. All right. The chapter got more applause than you did today, Noah. Uh, can you go up? Can you go to the text? Let's just get right into it. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer at three o'clock in the afternoon, and a man lame from birth was being carried in. People would lay him daily at the gate of the temple called the Beautiful Gate, so that he could ask for alms from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for alms. Peter looked intently at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Jumping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who used to sit and asked for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Okay, so what's going on in this text? This is the first action in the book of Acts following Pentecost and that initial moment of the community sharing everything that they have and holding all things in common, and there was no poor among them, and there was no needs among them. And this is about healing. Okay? This is similar to what often happens in the Gospels. 
Jesus does something profound, significant, teaches something profound and significant, healing takes place. Happens all of the time. And so I think whatever we're going to read here in Acts 3, we have to connect back to Acts chapter 2. This is a good practice of reading uh, biblical text as a whole, seeing how the story unfolds next, because I think it's intentional. So you have a lame person who's also poor, and he's carried to the outskirts of the temple area to beg, and this happens every single day. Now, Acts 2 shows us that Shavuot, or what we call Pentecost, is being fulfilled, and that with that, Torah is being put back on display, and, and the church is continuing what Israel started, and one of the things that's brought up in the midst of that is, there will be no poor among you. That if Torah is fulfilled, if the commands are followed, there won't be any poor. And then that text in Deuteronomy 19 goes on to say, but the poor will always be with you, because y'all aren't going to do this. So here we are, and in, in Acts 2 happens, and the first Christian's response to Torah being put on display again is to say, we can make this happen. And in their community, they do. But then you get here, and Peter and John literally say, we don't have any silver or gold. Now, right before this in Acts 2, people sold all their stuff, and they, they gave it to one another, and they gave it to the poor, and they shared everything they have. So, Peter and John don't have anything? How is that the case? Because it's not theirs anymore. They literally own nothing because everybody owns it together. So they don't have any silver or gold to give to this guy. But I also don't think that's the most important part of this. Because here, they could practice philanthropy. They could, as Martin Luther King Jr. would say, flip a coin to the beggar. They could do that. But if you remember from that last week, oikos is not about philanthropy. The household, the, the, the sharing, the belonging together is not about philanthropy. It's not about just writing checks and flipping coins and doing nice things. It's about this is how it works in our house. And this is inherently different. And until now, this guy just begged every single day to get through another day. What the church does is it offers a life for him that will provide for the rest of his days. So we could look at Peter and John and be like, that was kind of mean, you could have given him some money. But for Peter and John, they're going, no, no, something more important is happening here. They're welcoming this guy into society that he's been rejected from, into this community, and now he is going to share in their life together. Which one is better? For him to have enough silver or gold to get through another day? Or for him to never have to ask for silver or gold again because he belongs? That's what's happening here. And I think it's important to note that this is an economic healing. Peter and John are restoring the poor to health. They're not just flipping a coin to the poor. And it embodies the essence of the church because Torah is being fulfilled here. If they would have given a coin to the beggar, then he would have continued to be poor. He would have had enough for today, but he would have continued to be poor. By doing this, that's one less poor among you. And that's what the Torah is meant to do. And I think we need to see within this text that as society has fractured, resurrection is all about reviving this kind of mission of what God has been doing since the beginning. 
that's going to be important for us to understand to deal with this, this healing part. Because healing was a symbol of being brought out of exile. In Egypt, God healed Israel. In Babylon, in Assyria, God healed Israel. And so whenever you see somebody healed, it's a symbol, it's a signpost of this thing that God is doing for the entire world. And when we see this healing happen in Acts chapter 2, it's not just the guy's not lame anymore. It's also the Peter and John saying, you know what God has always done for Israel, for the poor, for the lame, for the people who have been shoved out to the sides? God's doing that for this person now. And this person's showing us that God is going to continue to do that in the world for all of us. That's what's going on with this healing. Now, I also want to point out that eventually Peter and John are going to get arrested. And it's going to be tied back to this. Because when they do an action like this, you're threatening the status quo. And there are people who work under a different name, who have something to lose if you do things like this, who aren't going to be too happy about it. And this can often be dangerous, and it should be, taking on the name of Jesus is. And as we get into Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5 next week, and the week after, we're going to start seeing how this connects. But I think this means we should probably talk about healing, which I have never done since I've been here. This is going to be fun, and I have three minutes to do it. So an inexplicable healing takes place. And this is, again, common to the gospel narratives. And, and right after this section in Acts 3, the end of Acts 3, Peter goes on to say how uh, all of the Israelites there shouldn't be surprised. They're all amazed, right? It ends with amazement at what happened to, to him. And he says, you shouldn't be amazed. This is what God has always done. The fact that you're amazed means you haven't been paying attention. You rejected Jesus. You kind of caused this whole thing to get started. And now you've forgotten that the source of healing, the source of health, the source of liberation has been doing this the whole time. And you all need to repent and return to that source because God always does this. So Peter's not very happy with the people in the crowd. Um, and you have to remember that Jesus' work always involves healing. It's a signpost for the movement. It's a microcosm of liberation from chaos. And it's also a way to say this is what God's work always looks like. And so for the person who gets healed, in their physical healing, they're experiencing a taste of what that's like. But then for everybody else around, that person becomes this walking embodiment of what's happening. Okay? Does that make sense about physical healings in, in the biblical text? If we can go there, I can, I can keep moving. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, no, keep moving. We still don't understand, but keep moving. Um, and so those are the two things I think you've got to re remember, okay? It's a physical experience for that person. It's a signpost for everything else that's happening in the world that God's doing, okay? That's what's going on with the healing. Now, we have a problem. Because we hear about physical healings, and it seems a bit primitive, Okay? It seems uh, maybe even a bit magical, and it's not part of our normal experience. And maybe you've heard stories of missionaries in third world countries, and they said, we, we prayed, and this person was healed. And it was, it was like supernatural. 
In the United States, it's a little bit rare. Maybe you have heard of this, seen it, experienced it. I know my brother has. He's been in Guatemala and Honduras, and he's told me stories where he said this, this person was having a seizure, and somebody prayed and like did the name of Jesus thing, and it stopped. And I can't explain it. I don't, I, it doesn't fit, and yet it happened. Why is it so rare for us? Because I think it's easy for us to look back at the Gospels and say, their healing was just a way to explain, you know, what we have with science now. And I think there's something to that. We also might be the ones who have the problem. We might be ones who are missing something. So go to the, the picture. Yeah, that. This is a baobab, baobab tree. Anybody familiar with this? Okay, good. That's, that's helping. These only grow in Madagascar and other parts of Africa. What would happen if you tried to grow one of these, you know, back here? Would it work? Or if you tried to grow a maple tree in the desert? Okay, because the conditions aren't right. Now, you could. You could install some sort of greenhouse and uh, intervene in the natural processes as much as you can to actually make this thing uh, grow here. It grows in certain places that it's indigenous to, okay, and where it's going to thrive. And it won't here because we don't have the right conditions. Healing, we could say, is like the baobab tree. It doesn't seem real to us because we don't normally experience this. And if we didn't have internet and pictures, and then somebody showed you one of these trees, you would have no way of understanding what this thing is because you don't normally see that. And if they said, here, grow one of these out here, you'd be like, no, that, that's not going to work. Is healing similar? Because as we entered into the scientific revolution and industrialization and the age of reason, we began to dismiss the supernatural. And not all for bad reason. Some of it is because we learned how things work and we're able to explain it better. And that's not a bad thing. You know, how many of you have been healed by medical technology? That's not a bad thing. The fact that you can, if you start coughing terribly this afternoon, you can drive to the hospital and get fixed. That's still really good. But are we also missing something by saying things are only real if we can scientifically prove it? Things are only real if we can wrap our minds around it. Because that assumes that we have figured everything out. And everything actually does fit in our minds. But what we're finding with science is that the more that we're learning, the more we're realizing we don't know. That there's still a lot of mystery and complexity and things that we haven't quite figured out. And so maybe for healing, it's simply that we live in the wrong conditions. If you grew up in Ohio and someone tells you about the baobab tree, you might not believe it because everything you see doesn't match that. And if somebody tells you about a healing taking place, you might not believe it because what we see in our culture doesn't match that. It's okay. Just because physical healing isn't taking place all the time, it's okay. Also, don't assume that the people in the text are weird, mystical, magical psychopaths. Because it does happen. 
And sometimes the world works in a way that doesn't fit. And we have to have room with that if we're going to be people of faith. Here's the other problem. Healing's not a vending machine. I once was with somebody and uh, we were golfing. I was in high school. I had a lot of knee surgeries in high school and I was having knee problems again. And uh, I had said, they said, how are you doing? And I said, well, my knee's, you know, hurting a little bit. And they came up to me and just started, in the name of Jesus, we just ask that you fix this knee, that you take away all this bit. And I'm sitting there going, it's not that bad, actually. I'll, I'll be all right. I, I just, you know, I need to stretch it out. Um, there, there are Christian circles in which healing, in, you know, if you've seen the Benny Hinn video of let the bodies hit the floor, you know what I'm talking about. There's, <laughs> thank you for laughing. <laughs> There's a culture where the point actually does seem like it's healing. And if healing is a microcosm and a signpost of what God's doing in the world, not bad. But the point is never healing. And, and, and here, so here's the other thing we have to talk about, is that healing always seems to be a medium for something else. Medium for something else that is happening, and that is the actual point. Because there's a commonality of every single person that Jesus heals. So we get 30 individual stories in the Gospels of Jesus healing. You get 10 other instances where it says many people were healed. And there's a commonality with all of them. Does anybody know what it is? Besides the people who are here at 9 o'clock who already heard this. You're not allowed to answer. All of them are things that would have excluded them from the life of Israel. So best example, scale disease, which we sometimes translate leprosy, but it's not like modern leprosy. Scale disease comes from Leviticus. If you had scale disease, you were seen as a corpse, which is a problem because there you do not mix uh, death in life. You do not mix the holy with the ordinary. So if you had scale disease, you had to go outside of the village, and if somebody approached you, you would yell, unclean, unclean. And it wasn't a dismissal. It was an honor to properly uphold the holiness of Israel. What do you think happens in that culture, though? Eventually, people with scale disease kind of get excluded, but they're literally not allowed to participate in the life of Israel. It's why the guy who's lame in Acts 3 isn't in the temple. He's not allowed to. And this continues for the blind, for defects, for bleeding. You can find all of these situations where that was a problem. Jesus heals these people. He interacts with the culture and he finds ways to heal them. Can you imagine if you had scale disease and you were healed, what that would do to you? Are you guys connecting the dots here of what healing might actually be about in society? I want to give you an example. Uh, I use the... Go to the next picture. It's an old one. Is it going? You like it? Uh, Vanessa took that. Okay. This is my sister. My sister, she's also here. Everybody say hello. No, you can't talk. 
because she's deaf. She can't hear you. So everybody just say hello. Okay. You see, you see where I'm going with this? Okay. Would you assume that Karishma would want to be healed of her deafness? What do you think? Yes? Uh, she does have a cochlear implant, which is a sort of modern healing um, that she's able to hear, except you don't uh, use it all the time, so we can't talk to you. She doesn't always put it on, which is kind of her way of saying, like, I'm ignoring you. <laughs> if Krishma was healed of her deafness, would she lose something? If you experienced the world one way for all of your life, and now that was changed, would you lose something? Now, if the prophets talk about how deafness being healed was a sign of God's world coming to life, you can see why healing deaf people would be good. Is that uh, necessarily how our culture talks? No. In fact, what our culture has done well is it said, maybe Karishma actually has an experience of the world that offers value that none of you have because she sees it in a different way. So what would happen if Karishma were healed from deafness? I don't think it would do the thing we might hope that it would do. Are there moments where she probably wants to hear like the rest of us? Sure. Would we lose something? Yeah. Just because somebody's experience is not normal doesn't mean it's inferior. Okay? Now, uh, go to the next the next thing I have. The word heal means to restore. And what we see happening with Jesus is he's not just fixing people. He's removing distinctions and giving them dignity in society and allowing them to participate in the way that they need to participate to be whole, to be part of the tribe, to belong. Do you see why the healing in Acts 3 is so important after what we just found out in Acts 2? This guy now belongs. He's now in. He's able to participate in the life of the community. That's what's important about healing. And so I think we need to ask different questions. Is healing simply the medium to the actual point which is restoring humanity? in human beings. How it worked in their culture? Yeah, physical healing was necessary. Not so much now. Is it still great? Yeah, so if, if any of you, like seriously, somebody does the laying on the hands and you're healed, I still will celebrate that with you. That's great. But that's not, that's not the end game. And whether or not we have the physical healing, we can still have the end game. We can still have the thing that it accomplishes. So, I remember a story. Uh, Krishma and I are in Florida, and we're at a tattoo parlor. This is going to be good, right? <laughs> Vanessa was getting a tattoo while we were in Florida. It was one that I hand-drew in, in Hebrew. It was very meaningful. We're not a bunch of heathens, okay? But, so, Krishma and I are sitting there in that tattoo parlor, and... Um, this happens often when we're in public, where hearing people will start going and lose sight of like, oh, she, she's not able to keep up because we're not just talking. And eventually she kind of like checks out, whatever. 
and we have to go about the day. And that kind of happened in this instance, and, and Krishna had said, why do people treat me differently? Because I'm deaf. The people in this situation included me. I have, in many moments, caused my sister to feel like less than me because of something that is different about her. What does healing look like for my sister? To uphold her worth and dignity, to honor her diversity, and allow it to inform how we interact, and help inform how we move through the world, and allow her to fully contribute and participate in the life of community. Do you want to know something that could be a little bit confrontational to all of you? And I'm sorry if this... Krishna didn't want to come today. Not because she knew I was talking about her. You know why she didn't want to come? Because she doesn't fit. It's hard. You all talk. She doesn't know what's going on. My mom's desperately trying to remember very specific sign language words right now so that she can interpret. How many of you, I'm sure many of you have said hi to Krishna. How many of you have asked her about a sign? Or asked, how do you sign that? I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm not. I do it all the time. That's what healing looks like, though, in that specific situation. That's what healing looks like. To restore people, to allow them to belong and participate and and be a part of this. And what came up at 9 o'clock that I think is important is let's leave physical healing aside for a second. Let's imagine that we took your mind, every thought that you have, and we put it up on this screen for everybody to see. You know how many people in the room would need some healing? You know how many people in the room would need to feel like I don't belong and something needs to happen and and only then would we have other people in the room that would be able to go like, let me meet you where you are and let's get out of this together. There's a lot of healing that has to happen. There's a lot of us that feel like we don't quite belong all the time, that we can't participate in the life of a community, that Acts 2 isn't actually happening yet. And we can do something about that. And so I think you need to ask for yourself today. Do you need healed? There's something. Do you need healed? And, and hear this good news. The God of Israel is in the business of making people whole. The God of Israel is in the business of bringing us out of exile. The God of Israel is in the business of restoring the image of God in all things. That's good news for you. But we also have to ask, who needs healed around here? Those of you who work in the medical field, you do this every day. You're healing people. Physically, and that might be the closest thing we'll ever get to doing what happens in the gospel. 
with physical healing. But every single day you come across people who are just like that lame man sitting outside of the beautiful gate. What are you going to do about it? My hope is that the farmhouse will be known as a place where people are restored. That we will live in a rural community where people feel included, people feel like they belong, people feel like they can participate no matter what might be holding them back. Who needs healed? And don't think it's just those inferior seeming people out there because the person sitting next to you probably needs a little bit of healing too. I know a lot of the stories in the room. No matter who you think is sitting in here that's got it all together, they don't. And that's okay. So I want us to take communion today. And as we celebrate this sacrament, uh, I grew up and uh, went to a Catholic high school. Go Irish. I, I think I have to do that. I don't know. But it always struck me in a Catholic Eucharist liturgy that there's a point where it says, Jesus, just say the word and I, I shall be healed. Are you familiar with this? Say the word and I shall be healed. And I've actually heard stories uh, kind of from mystical perspectives where somebody was sitting there, they heard that liturgy and physically they felt healing happen in their bodies. And so today as we take communion, I want us to honor that Catholic tradition. Um, as you take that bread and you dip it in that cup. May you at least think that thought, Jesus say the word and I shall be healed. Because I think you need some healing. But also the way that God brings people out of exile, the way bring, God brings people into healing is through this bread, bread being broken and this blood poured out. And the way that we are going to bring healing to a world that desperately needs it is by being broken and poured just like this bread and just like this cup.